Dr. Nijay Gupta. He has just written a new book. This is the Kindle edition. It's called Tell Her Story, How Women Led, Taught, and Ministered in the Early Church. It just came out yesterday. I got my copy on Kindle when it released at midnight, and I was able to read the book. It's about 200 pages or so, not extraordinarily long, but extraordinarily good. Nijay and I were able to connect last fall at SBL in person after like 20 years of not being in the same room. And when I was telling him about what I've been up to lately and here at Disciple Dojo, I said, hey, let's have you on sometime. And he graciously agreed. I figured what better time to have him than during Women's History Month when his book on women in the early church has just come out. So we had a great discussion. It was awesome getting to catch up with him. We got to sit down and talk for about an hour, which of course is not enough time to unpack the entire subject. Now, for those who want more than we were able to cover in this discussion, I encourage you, if you haven't already, check out the episode that we filmed here at Disciple Dojo with my friend, Dr. Carmen Imes on the problem passages, the prohibition passages regarding women in ministry. We go into much more detail. We look at the exegetical content of those passages. So that's a great follow-up to this video if you're interested in the topic, whatever your position is on women in ministry. And before we jump in, if you haven't already, please subscribe. Our goal this year, it's a very lofty goal. I don't know if we're going to do it, but we're going to try. We're trying to reach 20,000 subscribers by the end of this year. So please hit the subscribe button, hit the notifications icon so you don't miss future episodes. And so it lets YouTube know, hey, we're interested in supporting and seeing more Disciple Dojo content. That really helps us out. And the final way that really helps us out is financial support. This is a fully donor-funded ministry. So if you appreciate the resources, the hundreds of hours of free biblical teaching, Bible study reviews, all of the things we do here at the channel, whatever amount you could give per month, we would love to have you as a Disciple Dojo donor. That's how we do all of this. Okay, Sit back and enjoy my discussion with Dr. Nijay Gupta. Folks, you're in for a treat today here at Disciple Dojo. My friend, Dr. Nijay Gupta is here with us. He is in the middle of sharing, touring, um, plugging his new book, Tell Her Story, which I actually have the Kindle version, it's also available in paperback, but I wanted to get the Kindle version so I could read it before talking to Nijay, and I did, and it's wonderful. Nijay, we're so glad to have you here. Thanks for coming. Thank you. Um, it's a pleasure to be on. We got together at SBL and, and got to have dinner together, so it's great to connect again. Yeah. After many years. Many years. Yeah, it was, SBL was seeing, uh, I was thinking it was you and Esau were two of the people I had not seen in person in 20 years. Yeah. literally 20 wow. years. So it was really cool to be able to sit, have dinner with you. And um, I think you, I've had on the sh podcast here, I have had all of the other participants at that dinner. Uh, well, except Charlie Trim. I've got to get Charlie on here, but you and Charlie were the two who have not been in Disciple Dojo. So we're so glad to have you in. And I want to talk about your book, obviously. But before we do that, people that don't know you, because a lot of our viewers are kind of getting into biblical studies. Um, one of the things Disciple Dojo does, we want to introduce people watching to voices that you should know about in the world of biblical scholarship. And Nijay is one of those voices 
for sure. And EJ and I were at Gordon Conwell together. I think we started the same year and he went on to scholarly renown. I went on to uh, focus on jujitsu and doing YouTube video teachings. <laughs> but what what happened? I left Gordon Conwell in Hamilton to transfer down to Charlotte after our second year. You mm -hmm. and the rest of those that started with us stayed up there. What did you do? Um, how, how did you transition from Gordon Conwell to Dr. Nijay Gupta, world-renowned New Testament scholar? Well, my second year, I met um, a student named Amy, Amy Olick, and we dated and got married in uh, less than a year. Um, so we fell in love at Gordon Conwell. She was a student as well, a Master Divinity student, uh, Master of Arts and Counseling as well. Um, and you know, Gordon Conwell is one of these places where you can meet the love of your life. And uh, I was one of those lucky uh, people to do that. Um, and so we had our first uh, child there uh, during that time, uh, Simran. And then um, I was deciding between ministry, church ministry, and um, getting my PhD. I, I, my heart is for churches. Mm -hmm. My heart is for pastors. My heart is for the public um uh, gospeling of the world, bringing good news to the world. At the same time, like like you, I am a nerd and I love the Bible. I love biblical studies. I love Greek. I love Hebrew. I took Aramaic. I took Akkadian. I took Ecclesiastical <laughs> Latin. I took Septuagint Greek. I took Patristic Greek. Um, I took German. I took French uh, in seminary. So I, I went full nerd. And so I was deciding, but I, I really was kind of drawn towards the idea of doing ministry in the context of being a seminary professor. That's, mm -hmm. uh, I fell in love with learning in seminary. I, I didn't kind of know who I was or what I was made for until I was in seminary. And then I was like, wow, there's a place like this exists. It's so amazing. And, and you know, uh, James Michael, that we had just amazing professors, mm -hmm. Sean McDonough, Roy Champa. Um, I got a chance to work with Catherine Krager, um, Walt Kaiser. I mean, we just had Doug Stewart, all these incredible um, well, incredible mentors and leaders. So I, I applied for a PhD program. I won't tell you all my woes of not getting into places, but I struggled to find uh, a place. My GRE scores, which are the exam scores were not great. <laughs> I will tell you, I will tell you this, but don't tell anybody else. Okay. Um, Nobody I, watches I this. took, I took the GRE <laughs> and I, I got a, you know, mediocre score. Right. And then I said, I said to the Lord, okay, I'm going to take it again. And then if I score higher, then that's a sign that I'll try to get into a U.S. program. Uh -huh. I actually scored lower. <laughs> the <second laughs> time I, took the gym. I think I was stressed out and I was fed up and I just clicked buttons. I just like get through this right. thing. Anyway, ended up going to the UK. I was really blessed to go to the University of Durham. Mm -hmm. And your listeners may be interested in knowing that N.T. Wright was the Bishop of Durham at the time, mm -hmm. uh, which was just a huge deal. He was kind of on the rise. This is the early 2000s. Mm -hmm. And um, so I was excited to be in just, <laughs> you know, to fall into his shadow and be healed uh, was was. Uh, you know, what I wanted back that time, Jimmy Dunn, James D.G. Dunn was around, mm -hmm. retired, but around C.K. Barrett, some of these famous Roman scholars, Charles Cranfield. Um, so it was it was just a wonderful time. So I spent a few years at Durham getting my Ph.D. under John Barclay 
and Stephen Barton, John Barclay has become known as the grace guy. If mm. your listeners, readers, viewers haven't uh, picked up his work, I'd recommend Paul and the Power of Grace, okay. which is his more popular level book. If you want his heavier book, it's called Paul and the Gift. Mm-hmm. Um, so privileged there. And then um, I finished my PhD around the time the 2008, 2009 uh, recession happened. So a lot of jobs that should have been available weren't available because mm. um, because institutions were tightening their purse strings, uh, <laughs> right. rightly so. So I bounced around from job to job. I'll give you a quick tour and then you can follow up. But I spent a year at Ashland Theological Seminary, Ashland, Ohio, my hometown with, with our friend David De Silva and John Byron. Uh, then I spent two years at Seattle Pacific University and Seminary, um, had a great experience there. Then a year at Eastern University in Philadelphia area. Then a year at Roberts Wesleyan College with our friend uh, Richard Middleton. I was actually at the seminary, Northeastern. Then six years at Portland Seminary of George Fox University, uh, which our friend Carmen Imes has taught there before. Um, And then I got the famous text uh, that changed my life from Scott McKnight saying, uh, come over, come over to Northern Seminary. I was trying to make a connection to the man in Macedonia, but uh, <laughs> c- c- come here and, and uh, preach in, in, in Chicago. But I, I, I was able to work at a deal where I can stay in Portland, Oregon, where I live and mm-hmm. teach for Northern Seminary with Scott McKnight and David Fitch and Beth Felker Jones and Lynn Kohick mm-hmm. uh, and other excellent, excellent uh, colleagues. Um, so that's, that's my tour, my world yeah. tour. <laughs> you you have been around the block in the I've world of New Testament teaching. That's awesome. It's uh, I I wondered where you were now because the connection with Northern, but then you live in Portland, so that actually explains a question that I had. So that's a pretty sweet deal that you didn't have to relocate, but you're still able to do what you need to do. Yeah, my wife has been a pastor. She's done other work, but we're well settled in the Portland area. Um, we have great things going on here, like. The Bible Project, um, the Luis Palau Association is here. So God is doing some amazing things in Portland. Um, yeah. I know the outside outside of Oregon, it seems like you know postmodern pagan central, um, <laughs> and, but it's 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 an amazing place. It's beautiful, and God's yeah. doing amazing things here. So we're ha- I'm happy to be a part of that. Have you done anything with Bible Project? Officially? Actually, I'm I'm proud to say. Um, Two Northern students slash graduates are on the scholarship team mm-hmm. uh, employed by Bible Project. Um, one of them is a current student of mine. And, um, you know, Northern has partnered with some events locally uh, with the Bible Project. Um, so I, I kind of feel like we have the same vision, but are on different ends. Right, <laughs> you know, right. Northern, Northern invests in 10, 20, 30, 50 people. And, you know... Um, Bible project reaches billions, but we have, we're part of the same mission, which is beautiful. Yeah, that's, that's a huge, I love Bible project. I, Carmen actually pointed me to their videos way back, like back when she was doing her yeah. PhD work and, and we had, we were still in the same church together or had just, she had just moved away, but I was blown away by how good. I mean, the, the animation, and everything it's, it's great, but the content as a, as a Bible teacher for 20 years now in churches to normal, regular non-seminary people, they were hitting all of the things that I thought this is what people reading biblical books need to know that doesn't normally get preached in a 
Sunday sermon. And so it's a great bridge. It's a great conduit. But then having, you know, people like you and others in the academic community sort of shepherding the content of those types of things is absolutely crucial. And that's one of the reasons that I like having folks like you on this program is to help shepherd this whole thing of Disciple Dojo and our, our trying to do it at a significantly lower level in terms of budget and artistry, <laughs> something similar to what Bible Project does. You got um, the action figures to inspire. Superhero Seminary. They, they need to make that. That needs to be another sub channel of Bible Project. I think it would just make a killing. Um, <laughs> but you 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 have i've said in an email i sent you you have the second nerdiest dissertation title of any guest that i've had in disciple dojo the first goes to my friend dr christopher dost his title of his dissertation was the subloco notes in the former prophets of biblica hebraica stuttgartensia nothing is nerdier than that but yours is pretty close what do you remember exactly your dissertation title and can you share us uh, well the is? title is worship that makes sense to paul this the dissertation subtitle which was changed for the for the published book was uh i think it's a cognitive and socio-literary approach to paul's non-atomic cultic metaphors to the theology of paul's to non-atomic cultic uh, metaphors. Close. that was close it's been yes. a long time it's you know if anybody has a, a hundred or so dollars laying around and you want to go pick it up on amazon i'll link it in the description but what in all seriousness you spent years of your life working on a dissertation what was your your focus your specialty your draw in that yeah um i i think the basic ideas are very um applicable to everyday christians and it's this notion that um you know traditionally we we students study the Bible with these categories like ecclesiology, like the study of the church, pneumatology. Mm. And Paul just didn't think like that. He didn't convey theology in these systematic boxes. Mm. I think we can try to get back to core values and beliefs, but the way he actually expresses his thinking and theology is in metaphors, mm. metaphors of family, metaphors of conflict and war, metaphors of light and darkness. And actually one of the controlling or load-bearing metaphors is from uh, the world of cult, which in biblical studies means sacrifice, priesthood, temple, mm -hmm. all of that. And if we, so what I did was I wanted to pay attention to when and how and why Paul uses images of temple, like your mm -hmm. body's a temple or mm -hmm. sacrifice offer your body as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, and so forth. And what do we learn about Paul's theology from that, especially in terms of individual and corporate identity formation? And um, so, so just to get practical, you know, at your churches out there, what are the key images and metaphors that your pastoral team keeps coming back to? Because that's going to tell you a lot mm -hmm. about who you are as a community. And so basically the, the, the premise of the book is these metaphors aren't just literary icing on the cake of theology. They actually are, they are his theology. Mm -hmm. And this comes from cognitive linguistic theories that say um, we construct our cognitive and social world based on metaphors and analogies. Um, so when we talk about our, our workplace as a team or a family, right, we're building that on a certain image 
um, in sports, you know, let's go, let's go into battle, right? They, right we're we're right. using these images. So how does Paul do that? And Paul doesn't tend to use these images to, to look at salvation. He does every now and again. He really does it to talk about things like suffering, hmm. faith, resilience, hope, um, holiness. And, and th- th- that's the focus is, is what does worship really mean if we're applying these cult analogies to all of life and everyday life. That's awesome. Is, do you have, uh, is there a popular version of your dissertation or is there an article or something that it, I only ask because I know that that would resonate with people, but they may not be able to wade through a dissertation. Or a Ford. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I will say you know, one thing, which I don't think my publisher would like, but uh, uh, British uh, people that study in the UK system, our dissertations are actually free on uh online most of our dissertations are free Uh online so we can check a box when we graduate do you want to allow your dissertation to be free so if you just type in that title worship that makes sense to paul with cognitive whatever (laughs) it should come up in the uk system as a downloadable pdf oh that's awesome Um, i didn't even know that i'm I'm gonna do that (laughs) i did change maybe five percent of it for the book because i had to get make revisions but don't tell my publisher I told you that. <laughs> um, but, your, your publisher is probably not watching this, so you're safe. <laughs> no, <Right>. but uh, <laughs> honestly, you could do this with almost any um, dissertation from the UK. Uh, and, and I've done this before where I couldn't mm. get a hold of the book. So I just downloaded the, the dissertation. And I, I know that's not ideal, but um, it, it is free. <laughs> it is, and it's legal and it's ethical. and so, It's 100% yeah. legal and ethical because it's actually put out by uh, an organization that wants this stuff to be available yeah. for free. The, the, the an, one that, thing I would say mm-hmm. is I wrote a book called 15 New Testament Words of Life with Zondervan, which is kind of a New Testament theology. Yep. And I have a chapter there on religion. And I would say that chapter gives you kind of the similar similar kinds of stuff that I do in my dissertation. That was actually, I, I didn't even plan on saying this, but yeah, uh, his book, 15 New Testament Words of Life, um, Nije gave me a copy of this at SBL and I read it yeah. when I got back, but that chapter on religion, I think was one of my favorite because it was a good antidote to the, you know, I don't like religion. I just like spirituality or I just like Jesus, uh, sign of cliche that permeates pop evangelicalism. And you did a great job in there showing, Hey, actually Jesus and the apostles, they all kind of liked religion because it was part they they couldn't imagine a world without it where we today church state separation religion is you know piety and personal holiness um it was great so folks definitely i'll put a link to that in the description as well be sure to check that out and i want to spend the bulk of our time talking about your newest book tell her story this is um, how women led taught and ministered in the early church it's uh it's interesting because you, I came from an egalitarian background. I was born and raised United Methodist. Dad's a Methodist pastor. I've only ever known what it's like to be in a context in which women were encouraged to pursue ministry vocation. But I knew my Baptist friends that lived next door or down the street didn't believe that. And I always thought they were weird, but I still loved them. And so for me reading the story 
of people like yourself, you weren't raised in that tradition. You you're, you started seminary with one view and you finished with a different view. You've shared this on a number of podcasts, so I won't you know ask you to unpack it all again. But how how did you get there? You know what was that transition like? Yeah, you know, I became a Christian as a teenager, and I went to, um, you know, a, a non-Christian college. I was involved in Campus Crusade for Christ, and that was that was kind of the beginning of my introduction to um, theology as uh, a thing. You know what I mean? Like, just going to church, you don't know what theology is, but once you start to get into a place where people are really serious about growing in their faith— um, then, you know, people start introducing you to academic books. And in Campus Crusade for Christ uh, in college, uh, this was the um, late 90s. Uh, it was kind of the thing to do to read John Piper and Wayne Grudem, especially. Mm-hmm. So so John Piper would be the kind of the gateway drug <laughs> to get into theology, right. some of his stuff because he's so accessible. Right. And then once you're in, then you read Wayne Grudem and mm-hmm. especially his systematic theology, which was pretty new at the time, I think. Um, so I read it and I, I, I bought into this idea that these are very serious scholars, which I still agree with. Mm-hmm. And they care about God. They care about Jesus. They care about the gospel, which I all still agree with. Mm-hmm. Um, and I bought into what I now call package theology, which means, you know, it's kind of like um, getting a Logos package or back in the day, Columbia House Records, <laughs> if you remember those <laughs> yes. deals where, you know, you sign up for something because you want something and then you get a whole bunch of other stuff in it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you just kind of accept the package because uh, it's coming from a source that you trust. Yeah. And so I feel like a certain theology of gender came in that package and I didn't question it because I'd grown up in the Midwest in a context that was very traditional regarding gender roles. Um, I come from an Indian family where we, my parents have kind of traditional gender roles just from, you know, as immigrants from India. Mm-hmm. So I didn't question it. So I went to seminary at Gordon-Conwell um, I had this desire to be a serious theologian. And in my mind, a serious theologian took seriously the whole package, whether, right. whether, whether you investigated everything in the package or not. And so, you know, I went to an Orthodox Presbyterian church, which is, you know, on the you know, furthest right end of uh, Reformed mm-hmm. folks. Um, and, uh, you know, I read Jonathan Edwards, which we all did in seminary and I really wanted, and actually wrote my first systematic theology paper on why women shouldn't be in ministry. And we had to present it to our peers and I got some fellow students together, my roommate and some other folks, and I presented it to them and, you know, and I think what I was trying to do looking back is I was trying to prove my credentials to be in this club. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I used the regular arguments of Adam was created first and, you know, uh, primogeniture, which is rights of the firstborn. And, you know, look at the kings, look at the prophets, look at Jesus, look at the disciples, you know, look at the apostles. And I was able to bring out the, the standard arguments, First Timothy and the household mm-hmm. codes, you know, and it all looks great. <laughs> and then, but, but there was an undercurrent in the culture of that, that, one professor actually, um, who I was 
doing an internship with, uh, he, he, he saw that I was hanging out with female MDiv students because we'd eat in the cafeteria. You know this. Yeah. We'd eat in the cafeteria all together and we'd be walking around together and he could probably tell I was being a little flirty with some of these female MDiv students. And he pulled me aside and he said, you need to watch out because they're liberal and they're going to bring your theology down. Mm. I remember that mm. um, distinctly. And, and I thought, am I missing something? Because these women uh are incredible they love jesus they do well in seminary they went to gordon conwell i mean this is a conservative right. seminary evangelical seminary they care about missions they care about evangelism they you know they 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 aren't radical liberals um and that that got me on a journey of really saying i'm going to just study this hardcore in depth for mm. a, a year so i read everything that was ben witherington craig keener rt france linda belleville I read everything and I changed my mind and it wasn't, it wasn't so much that I jumped out of this camp and jumped into that camp. It was a real gradual erosion of what I call the edifice of complementarian theology. Mm -hmm. It's like Jenga. It's like a big Jenga right. uh, tower. Uh -huh. And some of the, all these assumptions I had, all these arguments, slowly pieces were being pulled out this thing is really teetering. Right, and right. I looked at scholars like Gordon Fee and I thought, I respect the heck out of Gordon Fee, F.F. F. Bruce, mm. Walt Kaiser. I'm like, these guys are conservatives, you know, mm. and they still believe it. And I, and I came to say, gosh, the arguments in favor of women and the arguments against uh, the guards in favor have some merit. The arguments against have a lot of problems. Mm. And it was it was more of a disappointment in the edifice rather than just sort of jumping from one place to the other. Did you was that part of because you when when did you become or get affiliated with a Wesleyan theological background? Like, where, how did you make that move from reform to Wesleyan? Yeah, it, it didn't happen in seminary, but one thing did happen in seminary and that you may resonate with this since you knew that Gordon Conwell of those days. I lived in student housing. Uh, for most of my time there as a single. And uh, um, I, I was like part of the student government. I don't remember if I was vice president or something, but I felt institutional commitment. And uh, I don't, I didn't drink alcohol at the time, mostly for health reasons, but I didn't. Um, and there, it was a dry campus, um, meaning you weren't supposed to have alcohol on campus. And yet in the dorms, our recycling bin was full of alcohol containers. And I felt this hypocrisy there with some of the students that they would be in class all day studying John Owen and Jonathan Edwards, and then they go get trashed at Salem Beer Works. Um, and I even had a roommate for a period of time who would come home drunk and my other roommate and I would have to help him get in his bed mm. and we'd have to cover for him in class. I mean, stuff that just made me feel really sick. I'm not blaming reform theology, but I, because of those experience, I had a bad taste for reform theology. I remember some people would joke that PCA stands for, I don't remember, something cigars and alcohol. Now, do you remember that one? <laughs> I don't know what the P is, but I don't yes. remember what the P is, but, but, uh, but uh, that I'm going to say, is I, it I, pipes, pipes, let's yeah. go for pipes. <laughs> uh, now, now I'm not going to condemn all Presbyterians everywhere for that. Uh, but that was the experience that I had. Mm -hmm. with the peers where they come across as these, you know, intelligent intellectuals. 
Um, and then there's this lifestyle. So I think I left seminary really disappointed and homeless when it came to a tradition. Mm. Um, and then I went to the UK and um, we just ended up going to a Methodist church just, just because some people invited us. Mm. And, my, and I started reading Wesley's journals and it really resonated with me, Wesley's passion for holiness, which I would say is a good life like Jesus teaches us. You know what I mean? Mm. Holiness has this bad reputation, but if you sit down with with a really good Wesleyan, they're, they're going to be able to pitch you on holiness as just an authentic and driven lifestyle towards the goodness of God. I mean, mm. and that really resonated with me, I think, because of the bad experiences I mm. had at Gordon yeah. Conwell. It wasn't everybody, but it was the people right, right around me who were hardcore reform people that just, I felt this dissonance with their lifestyle. Yeah, that's really interesting. It makes a lot of sense how that would, it's not, and what you're not saying, and I wanna make sure that viewers know that Nietzsche is not saying, that's why reform theology is wrong. What, he, what, I, what I hear him saying is he was so into it and then he had experience, you know, was uncomfortable and that led to questioning those the, the, like you said, the edifice, you know, pulling out different things about it. Um, and people have done that the other direction. I know people that have been um, in fundamentalist, like fundamentalist holiness movements, and then they meet a reformed thinker who's like, hey, let's go to the pub and talk theology over a beer. And they're like, wow, this is really freeing and amazing. And without getting into the excess of wayward seminary students. Uh, so it, I can see how those kind of things shape and bring they, they raise questions that we may not have asked if we were just looking at academic or in, uh, theological questions. That's that's really interesting to me I, because you're I, when I left Hamilton, um, I knew you as I, I didn't ever think of you as like oh that's Nije the hardcore reform guy, but I was like that's Nije Campus Crusade and you know he's he's pretty reform pretty complementarian and only a couple of years later when social media arose and I was able to reconnect with a, a number of those of us that were all in seminary together which is one of the funnest things about Facebook mm -hmm. I was able to see things you would post or share and I'd go hey wait whoa Nije sharing Methodist stuff my heart is strangely warmed. Yeah. What's happening here? <laughs> so it was really cool to see. And it was it was a very your journey has been interesting to watch from afar and be and as a fan, uh, you know, even though, yeah, we used to play Xbox together in Fippen Hall and, you know, eat in the cafeteria and do all that. It's I just love seeing it. I'm, I'm, I told Carmen, I'm just such a fan of all of you that are watching from afar and seeing what you're doing. And I want more people to know about y'all you in particular. I want to know also on that note, um, what's the biggest misconception that you have experienced or that you think people experience when they do start to question their view on uh, women in ministry, complementarianism, egalitarianism, and they change their position. They follow kind of the trajectory you did. What is the, what, what are people who aren't in that camp usually what do they get wrong about that such a change uh you know what i often hear is um this is you know uh influenced by culture and ideology 
mm-hmm. and don't let culture. I I hear this all the time. Even with my book coming out, I see this all the time. They've caved to culture. They've caved to, mm-hmm. and you know, if I'm able to have an intelligent conversation with somebody, I'll say, um, why did we get rid of slavery? Did we get rid of slavery because we were all reading our Bibles and just realized that slavery was wrong? No. <laughs> Actually, the people that were reading their Bibles were supporting slavery still. Uh, it, it, took, it took cultural shifts, cultural uh, intelligence to start to question our interpretations of the Bible. And that actually led to some of these changes. Uh, what about beliefs about black people and back in the day believing black people are cursed or whatever? Did that change because people were reading their Bible finally? No, they had always been reading their Bible, but it's cultural changes that brought an awareness of the bias that we had always had. Now, I'm not saying that's going to be, that's not going to lock everything. Um, I don't think everything that happens in culture is good. But I also don't believe everything that happens in culture is bad. Mm. And so I think there's this kind of, sometimes there's this mentality that tradition, Bible tradition and culture are enemies. Mm. That's really dangerous. I mean, and that, and that, and we forget that the early Christians were constantly uh, interacting with and often positively affirming culture. And one of the things I talk about in my book, Tell Their Story is, the early Christians actually adopted or absorbed leadership language from culture. Mm-hmm. Even though we use technical terms like deacon or bishop, uh, and we think these are religious terms, they actually weren't religious terms when they were used. They weren't unique to Christianity or Judaism, let's put it that way. Right. When they were right. used by the early Christians, they were, they were saying, there's good stuff in culture, let's use it. Well, gospel would be an example of that, right? The euangelion, the term gospel. We just had a Absolutely. cultural resonance. Yeah, it literally means good news. It can be used for basic good news or it can be used in politics. It can be used in kinds of other things as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what Christians tended to do was draw in things from wider culture, what we think of as non-Jewish culture, mm-hmm. and, and make them into their own technical terms. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they they often had an assumption that culture is neither good nor bad, but the world in which we live, right? Mm-hmm. In the same way, our bodies are good, but we're going to transform into another form of it. Um, so I think some of the assumption is uh, don't don't buck tradition. Uh, progressive is bad, um, and and I think that creates this weird anti-cultural uh, bias that um, I think is is just rejecting the world in which God made. It's God's world. So th- I think there needs to be caution with culture, um, but it's not should be taken for granted that culture can't teach us about our Bible it happens all the time. Right, right. And I've had to tell people this, that Paul would frequently make touchstones with his Greco-Roman culture, especially with their literature. And he would quote or heavily allude to Ovid or Epictetus or Erratus or some of these mm-hmm. authors that were the equivalent of, you know, Hollywood blockbusters or top 40 hits in order to make biblical points 
I, I, I do Bible reviews here on the channel and I did a, a Bible review of an app and, and it's a great free app. It's called Bart Bible. And it's, it's the review was just talking all about this app and showing the app and everything, the comments, because I did it, I was wearing a, um, a silver age, Marvel, mighty Thor t-shirt. When I did it, I got, I've probably gotten a half dozen comments of why are you wearing a pagan God? Why are you surrounded by, I literally, they look at my uh, Marvel and DC guys back here and they're like, why are you surrounded by idols? And it, it's just this, there's this allergic reaction to anything cultural that it automatically puts it as unspiritual or anti-Bible. When in fact, I'm like, well, actually, no, there's tremendous resonances. I mean, Sean McDonough was just on and, yeah. and he and I had a great discussion about the cultural resonances and the beauty that's everywhere in the world that the gospel calls us not just to tolerate, but to actually in, invest, instill godly meaning to kind of bring it out to its fullness. If you, if you want a good, I get this a lot too. If you want a, uh, I think a helpful exercise, it could come across a little in your face, but if you want a helpful exercise, if you're talking person to person, I would say, finish this verse uh, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell. And that, they say hell. No, yeah. the Greek word is Hades. Hades. Mm -hmm. What Jesus, our Jesus said the word Hades. <laughs> Jesus believes in Hades. No, Jesus doesn't believe in Hades, but this was the cultural concept they had of the underworld. Mm -hmm. He's talking to Jews. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so he's actually drawing from pagan pop culture to make a theological point. The worst right. of pagan culture. Right. Would Jesus want anyone to believe in Hades? No, and yet that's exactly what he says. Yeah, that's a so great, it's, it's that's an a interesting great example. And he says it at Caesarea Philippi, right? Like right where yeah. the supposed and, and, gates and of even, Hades were. And even the King James Bible, I thought, oh, the, if anyone's going to use Hades, it's going to be King James. Nope. They and no, people don't want to do that because it's confusing to people. Yeah, yeah, that's a great example. I'm going to tuck it in my back pocket and remember that. Um, there, the the book is tell her story focuses on particular key women old testament and new testament but mostly new testament although you begin with deborah and then jump to genesis and then there are uh then move to the women in the early church and carmen was on here we had a great discussion on uh, can women teach the bible and she and i looked at uh, what she gets as the problem passages, the clobber passages, the, you know, the, the butt passages. And you, in your book, you do an interesting thing. You put those, you deal with, you don't deal with all of them because it's not an exhaustive scholarly level book. You deal with kind of the main uh, objections, but you do them at the end, yeah. not at the beginning. Why is that? That's right. Um, you know, if we start with the prohibition passages, uh, especially with the interpretations we're used to, uh, which are these are prohibiting, it creates a filter for the rest of the Bible for us. And that filter will begin to move, uh, either move the figures that I want to talk about into the shadows uh, or ignore them altogether. Uh, uh, I, I forget, what's what's the effect where you misremember something that's popular? The, um, the mandala effect. Mandala effect. Yeah. Uh, I think it creates a mandala effect where if the, if the prohibition passages are the lens through which you read the Bible, mm -hmm. then you're going to 
mentally misconstrue information or convince yourself that certain things are not important. And um, the very beginning of my book uses the analogy of, of uh, uh, Margot Lee Shetterly's uh, book, Hidden Figures, which is about the women of the you know middle 20th century that were part of these uh, space flight scientific achievements, but we don't ever read about them in history books. And I thought, do we do that with biblical women? Because we feel like because of 1 Timothy and 1 Corinthians, um, we have created a kind of snow globe or artificial world where we can put women in the right place mm -hmm. and keep them out of the wrong place. And so I think a big kickoff for my mind with, the, with my book is when John MacArthur told Beth Moore, go home, mm -hmm. right? That is, those two words represent uh, a massive school of thought mm -hmm. that women belong in one place, the home, what Romans would call the domus, and not out in the man's world. I know that MacArthur has said he didn't mean that. I think he did mean that. Yeah. Um, his heart was speaking, I think. Even if he's saying, ah, I just met, no, 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 whatever you meant, I think your heart was speaking. And they're not meant to be out and about doing the stuff that male apostles and teachers and preachers and missionaries do. Mm -hmm. The reason I start with these stories is um, I, uh, as you know, this isn't the first book I've written. Uh, I, my background is in writing Bible commentaries where we sit there and we study verse by verse in depth, Philippians, Colossians, Galatians, first, second Thessalonians, the Lord's prayer and other things. Um, and what I've noticed throughout my, you know, 10 plus years of publishing and, and of publishing biblical commentaries is you run into women and they're in all the wrong places, mm. right? We have this picture in our mind, a kind of blueprint of the world, and we have territories where women can be and territories that are out of bounds or off limits. But when we read the actual Bible, women are there. That's one of my taglines. Women were there mm -hmm. in all the wrong places, right? They were there when the Messiah was born. They were there at the tomb, right? They were there all along. Um, I don't know what you thought growing up, but I thought, you know, when I tried to imagine reading the Gospels, Jesus traveling around, I imagine he's traveling around with, with 12 men. <laughs> I mean, that's, right. that's kind of, that's the, in many cases, that's the impression we get from the Gospels is it's 13 people. You know, how, how, many, how many tickets do you want for this bus? I, we need 13 tickets. Right, right. Every now and again, the picture zooms out and we see a whole bunch of other people that are traveling with Jesus, including women. So my point in the book is women were there. Now, the reason I start with Deborah is because I know people want to start with 1 Timothy. And when they start with 1 Timothy, they're saying women do great things. Women contribute a lot to ministry. Women are necessary and important for the gospel, but women are not qualified or permitted for top-level executive leadership. Mm -hmm. And if you press them on that, I think there has to be an undercurrent of they're just not as good as it, at it as men. It's some innate quality. Maybe it's in their soul. Maybe it's in their brain. Maybe it's in their emotions. Whatever it is, there's some innate. Otherwise, God is arbitrary, right? There's an innate quality. The reason I start with Deborah is in Israel's darkest 
some of their darkest days. Uh, maybe this is because I just finished watching The Last of Us, which is about a zombie apocalypse. But uh, I'm trying to imagine like this is Israel's zombie apocalypse. Uh, pretty close. Yeah. I'm trying to speak your language here. I'm trying to speak your language, Dan. Um, in Israel's zombie apocalypse, God says, you know, I imagine God talking, you know, sitting around talking to the angels. He's saying, here's an idea. <laughs> Let's get Deborah to lead the people. Right. Mm -hmm. The judges are raised up. In this case, she's not raised up because she's already judging cases. Mm -hmm. But you know, let's use her and let, let's make her go to war. Um, if 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 God had deigned that men lead women follow, then this was a crazy choice mm -hmm. because it's kind of like the Job choice. Like, let's see what happens. <laughs> let's put her in there. Right. Let's put her in the game. Right. And I don't think he did that to say she's a weak woman. Maybe she can rise up. I think he did that to say uh, she's going to be a prophet. She's going to speak for me. She's going to be a judge. She's going to – and a judge, you got to remember, their legal system and their religious system were intertwined. Mm -hmm. So I think people want to say, oh, she can be a judge on the Supreme Court, but she can't be uh, a pastor that weighs decisions. Guess what a judge was at that time? They're a spiritual leader. They're a military yeah. leader. They're an executive leader. They're an everything leader. That's why the 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 song of Deborah says she was a mother over Israel. Mm -hmm. um, so when people want to say, "Oh, First Timothy tells us everything we need to know," here's here's what I say. Biblical interpretation, especially across the whole canon, is a lot like a crime scene investigator. You're walking in trying to solve a puzzle. And you have to take into account all of the evidence and construct a theory, right? And it's like putting a puzzle together. Um, you have to find a way to make the pieces fit. And to me, if you have a Deborah and you have a Mary, the mother of Jesus, and you have a Junia, and you have a Prisca, uh, and you have a Nympha, and you have a Damaris, uh, it doesn't add up to me that First Timothy is Paul saying, I love women, but they just can't be pastors. Sorry. Mm. That doesn't add up to me. Not with the Deborah in the picture. I, I couldn't agree more. I think your, um, your friend Scott McKnight has said it great when he, I think it's in Blue Parakeet. Um, he wrote, before we ask what can women do, we have to ask what did women do? That's exactly and it. It's, it's to me, that was a, that I, even though I was been raised in, in non-complementarian circles, I always say non-complementarian because I don't know if I'm fully on board with everything that comes under the egalitarian package in the package yeah. theology you're talking about. Yeah. But I would, I mean, I wouldn't quibble too much over it, but I'm, the, you, when you look at what women did in scripture, old and new Testament, and your book does a great job of pointing this out, you start to at the very least, what I want complementarian viewers, because we do have complementarian viewers who have tremendous love and respect for, what I think complementarian viewers need to at least recognize, this is a, this, to me, this would be a win. A win would be getting complementarians who aren't convinced of egalitarian position. They, they keep their complementarian theology fine. To me, a win would be when a complementarian can admit, okay, it's not as clear as many of us have said, mm -hmm. I think this is the best approach still, but I recognize that there is another way to read the passage and that these assumptions that we have have been shaped more by culture, specifically mid 20th century American culture 
in terms of gender roles than they have by the biblical text. That would be a win for me, even if I didn't convince someone that their position is wrong. If I could just convince them that my position is not coming from anywhere other than the Bible, like that's the starting point is scripture. Yeah, you know, I, I've gotten a few reviews, um, you know, a handful of reviews, negative reviews. Um, you know, the book came out, but people were able to get, you know, copies beforehand. And I know it's coming and it's normal and it's, you know, um, it, it's part of part of public discourse. Um, but what's interesting is a few uh, a few people have said they don't like how I will use language of maybe or perhaps so much in the book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and they see that as a drawback because it seems like hesitancy. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I've said to my friends about that is I think some of these people have not read academic books before. At least one of them, I, I get the impression they haven't read academic books because academics try to be honest about levels of certainty. Yeah. Right. So, for example, did Junia, or sorry, did Phoebe read the letter out loud? I don't know. <laughs> and I tell my students that. And some of them said, I wish you would have, you know, just said, yeah. you know, I, 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 there's, it's all levels of certainty, right? Yes. I think that's what yeah. you're saying. Yeah. I, I've told my students, um, my views on women in ministry, women in the Bible, uh, I call it a so help me God approach, meaning I don't know that I'm right. I don't know that I'm 100% right. Mm-hmm. What I know is I feel confident enough in my views and what I've written in my book and what I've researched that I'm going to move forward and support women in ministry. And I'm willing to meet my maker having accepted into ministry 60%, 70% of the church mm. rather than prohibited them. Um, I, I say that pretty openly. Um, I wrote this book with confidence, but I'm not hundred percent sure I'm right because I'm not hundred percent sure I'm right on very many things. <laughs> right. Yeah. There's a difference in be- being persuasive and being dogmatic. And yeah, somebody like John I like MacArthur, I, you know, I don't like to always nail names and I, I've never met John MacArthur, but I only have his public record, his public footprint. What I've seen from that public footprint is he is uh, not persuasive. He's dogmatic. In other words, it is this and any question of this means you are on your way to becoming a heretic, if not already a heretic. I'm a double heretic because I'm Arminian and non-complementarian. Oh, and I'm not dispensationalist. So that puts me completely outside the fold. But that approach, I I pray for the day, and I don't know if it'll come this side of uh, eternity, but I pray for the day that that approach falls away and that people yeah. can have the approach that, that you and I experienced. I mean, I was, a, I was a Wesleyan Methodist at Gordon-Conwell in South Hamilton, which is predominantly Reformed. So I knew in my classes, learning from Reformed, Complementarian, Baptist, you know, different gr- I was like, okay, I'm, I'm comfortable being kind of on the other side on some of these issues. And I never felt from any of the professors that my views were being looked down upon or, or derided. It was like, well, we don't agree and here's why. Yeah. But there was a respect because you, in an interdenominational setting, you can't get away with caricatures and straw man. You have to show the respect because you're right next to and working alongside other people who hold those views. Whereas in a, in a, a homogenous setting, theologically, you're going to get caricatures and straw man. And so I hope that viewers watching this 
Uh, I think they, I want them to read your book and I want them to read the books that you note in your book, some of the other follow-up titles that do go into more of the academia. And I want them to see this is biblically rooted. That's the main thing. It's not culturally uh, driven, culturally informed, of course, you know, you talk about that, but not culturally driven. Now, let's end with this because we're running out of time. This is what I deal with as someone who was formerly and is in the process of officially becoming not a United Methodist. Uh, our denomination is going through a split and the split right now, it's very public, it's very vocal. And depending on which conference you're in, it could be very ugly. But it seems to be, again, this notion of package theology. If you accept women in ministry, it's because you think that the Bible needs to change or we just need to get with the times. We don't have slaves anymore. We let women preach. Next is sexual ethics. So monogamy is not a requirement. Same sex uh, relationships are perfectly valid because we are taking just the next step in the scriptural liberation and the, the moving towards the love of Jesus. This is what I get all the time. And I, end up alienating people when I say, actually, no, I don't believe that really. That's not my position. Um, how can we, can people avoid the two, avoid the conflation of those issues, sexuality, ethics versus women in ministry roles, whatever their opinions are of either of those topics? Yeah, um, I just had a conversation with my students about this this week and, you know, that uh, similar kinds of things come up in that. Uh, when we're talking about women in ministry, we're talking about something in the Bible. We're talking about things that we can point to specific texts and say, was Junia an apostle? Um, and I think we can say that. I, th- I think the vast majority of the biblical interpreters uh, are, are willing to recognize that as a possibility. Uh, uh, and, and you add in patristic you know, insights, and, and I think that's I feel like a pretty strong case uh, with the sexuality issue. It because of the differences between modern ancient culture and the way we look at things like sexual orientation, things like that. Um, we have teaching in the Bible about sex, um, but we don't. It, it is in some ways uh, apples and oranges in terms of um, differences, and so this idea that. The arguments that I've heard uh, favoring, you know, affirming uh, tend to be of what you've said, you know, welcoming uh, people of any kind, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I I take them as completely separate issues because culture can give us a new insight into biblical texts. But in the case of sexuality, I don't think that, you know, we would see the text differently. We'd have to completely interpret them differently. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I, I take them separately. Um, but, you know, anyone who wants to say this is a domino effect and we have to stop that, I would say, what about civil rights? You know, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, should we not should we not buy into civil rights and follow, you know, Dr. King just because it's a cultural movement? Mm-hmm. No, we, we now buy into civil rights for that reason. Um, right. I think one of the dangers of biblical interpretation is not knowing the difference between the Bible's theology and trying to retain the Bible's culture. Mm. And when we try to retain the Bible's culture, we're not going to have democracy. 
Uh, we're not going to have, you know, mutually beneficial capitalism. We're not going to have marrying for love. I mean, <laughs> right, you're going right, to have right. to throw out a lot if all you want to do is go back and live 2000 years ago. That's a great point because it, it brings up the, 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 the memes that float around about, oh, so you want to go, but you want to have biblical marriage? Well, let's start doing. And then it just takes all these cherry pick passages from the Old Testament that we today would not recognize that that's, you know, Christians wouldn't want. And they present it as this is the biblical view of marriage. And I think it's a subtle distinction. When, when I talk on the subject, I always say the Christian sexual ethic. I don't ever say the biblical view of marriage because the Christian sexual ethic did not just whole cloth baptize everything that the Bible recounts. It made a very, you know, specific or, or, or it, it gives us, I don't know how much stock you put in uh, like William Webb's redemptive hermeneutic. I know some people are not as sold on it. Uh, personally, I just think overall it's a helpful way of coming to the Bible that there is a trajectory that scripture takes us to, but when it comes to like when it comes to slavery, when it comes to women, you see this trajectory and we, we can simply follow the trajectory. You don't see that trajectory when it comes to sexual ethics. It actually goes in the other direction. It becomes more um, intentionally getting back to the Genesis account, what God intended in the beginning, as Jesus said, not even what Moses allowed. Uh, another issue for another time. We don't have time to discuss the ins and outs of sexual ethics. And that's not what your book is about. <laughs> but I, before we end, the last thing that I want you to at least mention that you gave two analogies, and I'm just going to mention them, and then you can talk as little or as much about them as you'd like. The golfer facial hair analogy and the chemotherapy analogy. Just give a, a teaser or something that unpacks a little bit, if you don't mind, because those were two very powerful images in your book. Yeah, I, I get the question a lot, especially in, you know, from First Timothy, where it talks about, um, you know, a leader must be the husband uh, of one wife. And people will ask me, you know, doesn't that doesn't that require that it be men? And I think we forget these are letters written to individuals that were later decided that they have such good teaching they must be part of scripture. They come from the apostles. They come from Paul. Uh, and so I treat them fully as scripture, but to recognize they are for a certain group of people, um, then you start to see that they're going to speak in normal ways to that audience. I would think Paul is doing is taking for granted the vast majority of leaders are men. And so he's going to speak to that audience with the possibility that there are outliers. I was at a uh, conference, a uh, church conference, where the speaker was African-American and the majority, the vast majority of the people in the audience were white. And the speaker would say, you white folk, and he would make a joke, right? I'm not white. Uh, does that mean I wasn't there? No, I, and I wasn't even offended. I know he's talking to the people he's looking at. Mm -hmm. And when you're looking at the vast majority of people, you see white people, right? right. Uh, and I think it's so, so the analogy I used was if you take a golfing situation today, a golf club, there might be a sign on the wall somewhere that says, you know, a, a golfer's facial hair must be groomed at all times. 
uh, is a woman gonna should a woman walk in and immediately say, "Oh shoot, I didn't know this was an all men's golf club." Uh, it might be offensive, it might be hurtful, but they probably understand that the vast majority of golfers are men, and therefore this is making it a statement to the population that isn't exclusive, mm-hmm. right? Um, I think that makes a lot of sense to what Paul's saying. Uh, because he says they must be husband one wife. Does that mean they can't be single? That's what I was gonna say. Yeah, Paul. No, himself, of course they can be single. Paul, he's, yeah, Paul did. Jesus did. Yeah. But what he's saying is, in, in the case that you're married, right? Mm-hmm. And so then we can also say, in the case that you're a man, <laughs> mm-hmm. then you must be this. Um, there's more to it than that. We can provide evidence of household leaders like Nympha, maybe Lydia, um, that would seem to fit the kinds of leadership that he's talking about. But mm-hmm. um, the second uh, analogy that you talk about is um, Paul's household codes, where he says, wise be submissive and so forth. And, and that raises all these questions. If Paul's so into equality, uh, why would he say these things? And I think that in this time, Paul doesn't know when the world's going to end. He, I'm guessing he assumes Jesus coming back, uh, he didn't know there'd be 2,000 more years of this. Mm-hmm. I think he's saying, let's make sure households are run orderly. Legally, the house belonged to the patrifamilias, the father of the house. So he's just saying, this is the org. This is the org structure that culture has given us, that politics has given us, that the law has given us. So let's, let's create harmony within that system. An unfortunate reality of that is... I think inadvertently, Paul is reinforcing patriarchy. He's reinforcing slavery also. And that stings, right? We've learned over time to say we can understand and appreciate harmony and order from the household codes while still rejecting slavery, right? Is that happening with this as well, with, with the dynamic between men and women? And, and it's easy to poke at Paul and say, how dare you? How dare you support slavery? How dare you support patriarchy? Um, I want to believe at the end of the day, Paul knows this is the right course of action in his time to say, you know, women fall. I don't like the word submission because the way we use it now, fall into order, fall into order. Because that's literally hupotasso. That's what the word means mm-hmm. to, 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 you know, find your place in the org structure. And you have to keep in mind the household codes are a pagan invention. They actually come from Aristotle. They don't come from the Old Testament. Right. So Paul is validating a pagan philosophical political system. He's doing it to maintain good order. But the analogy that came to mind for me with this uh, relates to my daughter who had cancer when she was very young. She's cancer-free now. So um, uh, we're we're happy that she's uh, very healthy. But Um, I remember having to give her chemotherapy, we'd crush pills and we would, and I remember I'd have to wear gloves and because there's like a skull and crossbones on the bottle, meaning I can't touch it. And yet I'm putting it into her body and essentially, you know, chemotherapy is poison. I mean, if if, I I didn't know this until I started treating my daughter for cancer, but chemotherapy is poison. And I wonder a hundred years from now, if people will look back and say that was barbaric the way they treated cancer was barbaric because they, they decided the best way to treat cancer with their medical knowledge was to give people poison. 
Now, I'm a believer in chemotherapy, by the way. Uh, I think that was right and necessary, but every time I crushed those pills and gave it to her, I thought, I wish there was a better way to mm. cure cancer. I just can't imagine what it is. Mm. And I wonder if Paul was like that, where he said, I wish there was a better way than this org structure. And I dream about it, but my dreams are too vague. I don't know what that looks like. Mm. How can you have Galatians 3.28, neither male nor female, and the household codes? Some people want to say, let's just get rid of those texts. I don't, I don't think you can do that. You know, this is God's word. Mm. I think we have to say Galatians 3.28 is a vision that was given to Paul. Uh, Colossians uh, 4 and uh, Ephesians 5 and 6 are the reality of the world that Paul lived in. Mm. He's trying, you know... We live in a time now where we can imagine new things and live out that vision. Um, and that's, 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 you know, that's how I would want to find meaning in those household codes. I, I really like that analogy. I really like the way of thinking about it. Even if someone is not persuaded that that's what's going on in Paul's mind, what you've presented is, is a possible way of reframing and and considering the issue that I think is really helpful. And I, I also think we, you know, I think we get hints of that when we read Philemon and we see Paul navigating through the cultural maze of honor, shame and, you know, patronage, all that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, pushing heavily against this whole institution, this whole concept without overtly coming out and attacking it for reasons that you get into uh, and that our friend David De Silva has talked about and, and other New Testament scholars have noted. So I, I really want people, Disciple Dojo viewers, whether you're complementarian or whether you're egalitarian, I think this is a book worth reading. Um, I think Nijay is doing great work out there in biblical studies. There, there are some biblical studies people who I think it's helpful to know what they think, but you know, at the end of the day, it's kind of the same as what a bunch of other people are doing. I don't think Nietzsche is one of them. I think he is like Carmen, like Richard Middleton, like the number of other people that we've had here at Disciple Dojo. He's somebody who's doing work that people in the pews need to know about. Um, so check him out. I'm going to put links to his books in the description. I'm going to put links to his Patheos blog. Um, is there anything else if people wanted to reach you, Nijay? I know you're busy and it's not like they can just pick up the bat phone and dial you. But if, uh, if people did want to either follow you on social media or get in touch with you for speaking engagements or book reviews or all that kind of stuff, how can they do that? Uh, I just want to recommend my podcast I co-host with AJ Swoboda called Slow Theology. Uh, we've been doing it for a couple years. Um, we have a, a, a great uh, group that that follows along. It's just the two of us bantering, uh, AJ and I, but we talk about how healthy Christian formation has to be done slowly and carefully, and that we often live in the tensions of life rather than resolve them neatly. Um, so come along the journey, uh, the slow theology journey. Check it out if you're interested. That's awesome. I love the title. As someone who spent a, a year in teaching through each book of the Pentateuch uh, on a weekly basis, that is a fantastic title. Kind of jealous that I didn't think of it. <laughs> but uh, no, that's great. We'll put a link to that in the description below. Nijay, I know you got to run. You're a busy man, and I am enjoying watching from afar all of your busyness. 
come back anytime to Disciple Dojo. I love sitting around and talking Bible nerdy stuff and picking your brain. So thank you so much, my friend. Thank you. We're fellow sci-fi superhero nerds. So we definitely <laughs> have to do an episode sometime yes. on redemption, redemption themes and, you know, the Mandalorian. And oh, you're speaking my language, my friend. You're speaking my <laughs> All language. right. Good chatting with you. Take care. Tell Amy I said hello and uh, have a great rest of the week. I wish we would have more time, but Nijay's a busy man. He's got a lot going on. Hopefully, we'll have him back here again in the dojo sometime in the near future. Once again, I want to recommend his book, Tell Her Story, as well as his book, 15 New Testament Words of Life. Both are excellent. Both would be great for individual reading or for small group reading. I'm not getting any money for endorsing any of Nijay's work. I'm not getting any kickbacks from IBP or anything like that. I just genuinely think that Nijay's is a voice that you should be listening to if you aren't already. That's it for this episode. We'll see you back here next time at Disciple Dojo.